90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing great. As great as I can the week before finals. <laughs> you know, everybody says, oh, well, the, the students have all this. No, no, the professors do because the students pass all that stress right to you. I know. Uh, I always say that. I was like, man, guys, don't you feel bad for me? I have to grade 60 of these and none of them ever feel bad for me. <laughs> and then I say, but some of you guys are real bad at this, so it's real sad to grade. Right. <laughs> and they they still don't laugh. So, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. You know what? So what I had my students do this last week in an attempt to pad their grades because I'm that that kind of professor um, I made them sit down and write questions for the exam and it counted as an in-class quiz, which is a 15% of their grade. So a non-trivial amount, right? Um, and I've, <laughs> I've done this every year and usually it's something dumb, but I've tweaked my requirements such that they actually get fairly competitive at writing these questions. And this year I went even further. And I said, give me one short answer, one multiple choice, and one true, false, or fill in the blank. Okay. And I said, you have to give me all the choices for the multiple choice, and you have to answer the questions as well. Yeah, Ooh. it was good. Yeah. <laughs> because every single person, as I walked around the room, almost every group was like, man, it's actually really hard to think of like, alternative things for multiple choice questions that are truly, you know, alternatives. And I said, yeah, yeah, it is. Thanks guys. <laughs> and they're like, this was real hard. Well, while you're subtly building your test bank. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> hey, I actually told them, this is the first time I've done this. I scanned them all in and made them available to the entire class. Um, and I said, I took, 10 to 15% of the test I took off of them. Oh, wow. They were real. Yeah, they were real good questions. It was stuff that I, you know, I, I don't like PowerPoint slides very much. I really like board work, which I know you do too. Um, so sometimes, though, if I go on some kind of extemporaneous rant, I forget that I did it, right? Because it's not <laughs> in my PowerPoint slides right. or it's not in my notes for the day. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so there were several questions that were about some of those asides that definitely should be on the test. I totally would have forgotten about. So, yeah, this quiz is in my heavy rotation now. It was excellent. And I sat there with their papers and I inserted their questions into the final and then made them available and said, yeah, there's a bunch of these on here. So Now, the challenge is you have to remember to go on those same tangents next year, though. Oh, I know. It's so hard. <laughs> I talked about soil formation. I never talk about soil at all. <laughs> and I'd forgotten I did that until some kid asked, you know, about the different stages of soil formation. I was like, how did this kid know? Oh, no, we did do that. Yeah, he's right. <laughs> so it was good. It was good. Because my test is, you know, a quarter finished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, mm -hmm. finals week next week, which is the same week as AGU. So I know lots of people have the same terrible issue. Not me. I'm not going to AGU this year. Yeah, I'm not either, but uh, hopefully this is the last year I have to miss it. Yeah, I haven't been in quite some time. It's just so big. It's real big. But it's still one of my favorites. 
No, it's it is it's real good too. San Francisco in December is quite lovely. Yeah, and it is actually in San Francisco again this year. Right. Yeah, I definitely wasn't going to go to it when it was somewhere crazy. Right. <laughs> I w- I'm interested in what the Moscone Center looks like now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, though I I did get uh, roped into going to the AMS meeting to do some teaching, which is in January in Boston. Yeah. <laughs> It's a big anniversary, right? And the AMS is out of Boston, so that's why they're having it up there. Yeah, which is a great plan until nobody can get there. Exactly. I was going to say, I give you like a 10% chance at yeah. <laughs> making your scheduled flights. <laughs> That'll be brisk and lovely. It, it will be brisk, <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Be like, Are you yeah, going to walk around and look at stuff? It's like, no, it's January in Boston. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna sit in front of the fire in front of my hotel and shiver and drink whiskey. Oh, sorry, that was me projecting. I'm sorry. No, it's like no. I'm going to find the shortest path between the presentations, the hotel, and a beverage establishment. Exactly. You got to do something to warm up. Right. <laughs> um, I actually put an abstract in for a. South Central Regional GSA, and I think this is only the second time in my life I've done a regional GSA meeting. So I didn't know they had them. Where where will this be? Oh, I mean, it's in Fort Worth. Yay! (laughs) 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 They do have them. Last year they combined a couple of sections, um, and it was actually quite a large meeting. They had it in Manhattan, Kansas, at uh, Kansas State up there, and it was a, a huge turnout. So this is just the South Central group. But um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, it's two days, but it looks like there's a bunch of really cool sessions. So I hope that most of those sessions fill out. Like I said, the abstract deadline was yesterday. So and we'll see. Well, all right. That'll be exciting to hear about. Well, it. I'm just going to go down there to go to Ikea. That's it. Right. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm actually really excited about those sections. And like I said, I haven't been to a little sessional meeting in quite some time. So once March rolls around, we can talk about that. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it'll be much nicer weather than Boston. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, we've been playing with uh, our new mill quite a bit here. I can't even imagine how fun that is. It's it's pretty crazy how fast we can make parts. <laughs> How many videos do you have of it? Quite a few. Um, <laughs> it's also a little crazy. So since we're making parts fast, you can also make bad parts fast. <laughs> you know, when you first sent me a video just of it changing out, you know, it's little tools that it can use. It moves so fast and it's so scary. And it just reminds me of like automatically setting the stage height on the SEM. And they're just hoping it doesn't crash into the detector, even though, you know, you've done everything right. <laughs> Like, there's still, like, that one last scary, when you press go, that that thin section or rock's just going to slam into your detector at the top, because it's so scary. Yeah, and, you know, I've I've slow it down for the first run of things, like, after I write a new program to make sure it's not going to do something crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you turn it up after, so it runs once, fine. And you're like, okay, this program is good. So you turn it back up to full speed. And then your heart stops. Uh, I, I had one last week that I was doing. It's a, a tool that 
the diameter of the tool is 60 thousandths of an inch. Oh my gosh. And it plunged down a half an inch into a hole that was 69 thousandths. Oh my. And, you know, it worked great in the slow run, so I'm doing it in at full speed. And so it's plunging in there at like 90 inches a minute, 120 inches oh. a minute. My gosh. So it was super scary. Uh, that's terrifying (laughs) (laughs) oh i can't even like i'm like getting heart palpitations by proxy (laughs) it's also amazing how fast you know with an aluminum uh which is really pretty easy to cut uh it's nothing well it's a pretty heavy load on the spindle but not excessively so uh to -hmm. take you know a tenth of an inch cut that's two inches in diameter off a piece of metal like cubic inches a minute removal rate that's crazy this is like whenever that is it how things work is that the show that does this stuff oh how it's made yeah (laughs) how it's made there you go yeah yeah it's like that show and you just sit there with your mouth open in front of the tv basically yeah (laughs) like this is unbelievable well, and I, I tell like people this, that have seen it, they're like, oh, this is incredible. Like, it's so big. It's like, this is the smallest one they make. <laughs> That's awesome. It is big. But no, it's uh, <laughs> it's been quite a lot of fun and doing some cool, uh, some cool products on it. And this week, I learned how to anodize. <gasps> this is relevant to my interest. <laughs> yeah. So I, I anodized... <laughs> I made a bunch of aluminum parts, and then I anodized them and dyed them orange, of course, since that's my company color. And mm-hmm. then after the I sealed the anodize, I used the laser and burned the anodize back off in my logo. So I've got these oh. beautiful orange parts with my logo in them. That's amazing. Okay, we're definitely. I'm going to start making a list right now. <laughs> <laughs> I love anodized metal. It looks so cool. It does, and really, the process isn't that well. Okay, I say the process isn't that hard. It's not that hard if you've had two semesters of chemistry. <laughs> I had two semesters of chemistry like 20 years ago, though. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was. I read the instructions. It seemed pretty straightforward. I did the math to mix the the solutions up. You need a power supply. I happen to have lots of those sitting around. <laughs> this is so exciting. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, in, you know, real-time radio here, I actually just sent you some photos whenever they get there. But <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> those are super nice. All that anodizing looks pretty good. Yeah. and Wow. Uh, I wanted to learn how to do it because I've got some parts that are be going are going to be going to a volcanic environment, and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to like to protect the metal from the all the sulfur. Yeah, that could be a problem. <laughs> and you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do I was talking to someone today. They asked, kind of, well, what do you do? They were there to do a an estimate for some work on my building, and mm-hmm. you know, I was describing. I said, well, we we send stuff to a lot of pretty nasty places like on volcanoes or into thunderstorms or to antarctica uh or to places like well deserts that was nicely done yeah so that's a very smooth transition into we're going to talk about uh some extreme environments 
And <laughs> we'll, we'll start with deserts and features that are found in deserts. So I was actually really surprised that we haven't talked about deserts on here at all. That seems odd to me. Right, because there's some really cool things that happen in deserts. Geologically, I mean, meteorologically, there's a reason they're there. But you get Correct. dunes, which are really cool. You can get Ventifax, which are one of my favorite things. Oh, oh, really? Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, the things called desert pavements. When you finally see one of those after like reading about them, you're like, oh, yeah, I get this. I love cacti, so that's a big deal for me. <laughs> that's not exactly what we're going to talk about today. But yeah, how do you get a desert? And they're actually a shocking amount of our planet is covered with them. Um, but desert, not to be confused with desserts, right? Because that's stress spelled backwards. <laughs> right. But it comes from the Latin word desertum, which means abandoned place. And I thought that was very desolate and creepy and a good a good example of what a desert is. Yeah. But you so. know, people always think, of, well, okay. People my age and older, when you think desert, you think Lawrence of Arabia. Correct. Yes. Uh, if you're younger, you probably don't know what that is. But <laughs> <laughs> Charlton who? What? Right. But but you, you think of camels, heat. Right. Sand everywhere. Sand everywhere. That's not really the only kind of desert there is, though. Well, no, not at all. Um, and so that's not even how we classify deserts. So... There's mostly classified by rainfall, right? So we have, this is real hard. This terminology is real hard. I want you to stick with me. We've got hot deserts and cold deserts. <laughs> but both of these deserts are deserts because they get less than 250, 250 millimeters of rain per year. Right, which is not a lot. No, not at all. Um, And maybe... I had to do some quick Celsius to Fahrenheit conversions today in class, and it was real scary. And then I checked my math afterwards, and I was only 1.2 degrees off. I was very proud of myself. All right. Yeah. Um, so maybe you have to do some of these millimeter to uh, inches math, because maybe you're not used to thinking about it. But so I looked it up. Norman's average rainfall is about 900 millimeters. About thirty something inches, and uh, your your neck of the woods is a little bit more rainy, and it's about twelve hundred millimeters per year. So and so, yeah, you can sort of think of it as well. Twenty five point four is the conversion factor, right? Right. So yeah. two hundred fifty millimeters. That's close to twenty five. So that's about ten inches a year. Right. And so you know, Norman's pretty dry. I mean, it's not super arid, but it's almost three times it's more than three times the amount of rain as you know the maximum definition of a desert is and many deserts get much less than this but it is important to realize that cold places are also arid places right it doesn't just have to be hot the poles are both deserts as well correct so cold deserts average about 20 degrees celsius in terms of temperature hot deserts like i said <laughs> That's exactly what we call them, cold or hot deserts. About 35 degrees C. The ocean's also a desert too, but that has more to do with um, life forms, and we can talk about that 
later, but life forms are also sort of go into the definition of desert after precipitation. Right. Though, so hot deserts, since that's the one that most people think of, uh, yeah. they can get really hot. <laughs> oh, this is crazy. This is crazy hot. <laughs> so this, I, and I think this is, correct me if I'm wrong, this is like a pretty recent high. So we topped out at 58C, which is like 136 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, so I think this happened only a couple of years ago. Um, and it wasn't in Death Valley. It was somewhere in the Middle East, I'm pretty sure. Um, although Death Valley gets very close to that. And this is interesting because the math that I did in class today, we were talking about how hot the Cretaceous was. Because that was sort of the last time Earth was in a really hot house climate. Um, and the question is, how hot did the poles get? And some estimates are up to like 50 degrees Celsius average average temperatures yeah that's really hot yeah so 58 degrees c that's that's rough but since the desert is defined by rainfall not temperature the the first thing that comes to mind when you say 250 millimeters a year or less is there's not gonna be a lot of plant life no correct um and so Deserts are generally vegetated over 15% or less of the surface of the desert, which is crazy to me because, I don't know, I do a ton of my field work is in Nevada and Arizona. You know, I work in the desert a lot, actually. Um, And I just feel like I see lots of little bitty plants, big barrel cactuses. You know, my new place, there's just, you know, little grass tufts everywhere. But I must not spend you know i don't spend like a whole season out in the desert and so i think the ephemeral nature of most of the vegetation there escapes most people yeah i think you're probably right yeah because there was a there was a desert bloom this last year and it was awesome when we were out there and it did it looked it was like carpeted with grass and i've never seen it look like that in all my years of going out there so you know 15 percent or less vegetation that's not much that also leaves a lot of wide open rock available for some very weird chemical weathering. But we can talk about that later. Yeah, I mean, and there's also, there's not a lot to hold any soil down. And there's also not a lot Correct. of precipitation to help make that soil. Yep. <laughs> so you get a pretty barren landscape. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Um, so some deserts look like Tatooine. Some deserts look like, you know the polar ice caps and yeah a lot of that is here on earth too there's a significant percent of earth's surface is a desert yeah so over a quarter are you surprised by that number no no um okay only when i think about it in the context of okay so how much of the earth's surface is water and then now Mm -hmm. a quarter of that that's left is desert that starts to get a little more surprising yeah but exactly but yeah no there's you start thinking about it yeah okay there's there's a lot of deserts that you've heard about yeah and a quarter of 30 percent yeah a quarter of 30 percent of the surface yeah desert um but these deserts all get there they're all over the place they're not just in one spot And so deserts in general are sort of classified on how they form. 
Um, there's lots of ways you can dry out a landscape. So that's kind of what I thought we would talk about today is just how do you make one of these deserts? Because they're all over the place. There's significant percentage of the continental surface area. Um, so how do they get there? Well, I think you've got to start with the big ones. Because if, if yeah. you say desert, I would guess that the vast majority of people, their first reaction would be Sahara. Yeah, I would think so, too. Um, that's, <laughs> I guess, unless you, you know, talk about different, different, different desert areas that are much smaller. But the Sahara, the Kalahari, um, the Arabian Desert, the Australian Desert, which is a significant portion of that continent. Uh, the great Indian yeah. desert. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are the big ones and they all share something in common is that they're all situated around 30 degrees latitude, which should instantly make you say something, something, something <laughs> global cell air circulation <laughs> pattern. And if you remember <laughs> from many shows back, uh, we had talked about these global cells and these are Hadley cells where you get rising motion at the equator transport northward at the high altitudes and then you get subsidence right around 30 degrees north and south mm -hmm. and sinking air is not conducive to you know creating thunderstorms and rain that you get at the lush tropical rainforests Instead, it does the exact opposite. Right. So on the way up, all the water has condensed out of that air. And so now on the way down, you've got very dry air that is getting increases in pressure happening to it, which means it adiabatically warms. So we're, we're turning on a very hot, dry hair dryer from above. Exactly. So all these big deserts are, in fact, hot deserts um, at those low latitudes. And yeah, these are large vast swaths if you've seen that picture you know that projection of the rectangular i don't know if it's smaller wide or whatever projection of the earth on all those posters and you've got you know the green spots and the brown spots and they go right along that 30 degrees north latitude because you got to think about the 3d nature of that hadley cell and it's descending air all over the place along that same sort of swath obviously it floats back and forth a few degrees of latitude but all around the world, big deserts in these areas. Right. And I, I would say this is a pretty simple formation mechanism, really. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, <laughs> I'm always surprised, not surprised, pleasantly surprised, I guess, at how, you know, you, you use this over and over again. I didn't ever talk a lot about meteorology in my intro geology class for obvious reasons, <laughs> but you can't leave that out, right? I talked more about meteorology this year than I think I ever have because you can't separate what's happening with the atmosphere with what's shaping the surface of the earth. And I mean, deserts are 100% the outcome of that situation. Right, which I think leads nicely into the next formation mechanism. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite one to draw on the board. Yeah, so rain shadows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love drawing this on the board. It seems super simple and it's very interesting, right? So if you think about the western coast of the U.S., you've got the Pacific Ocean and then you've got some mountains and you draw that out, Pacific Ocean, mountains. Now, all of our, <laughs> this is a great question to ask too. 
is you say, okay, class, which direction does our weather come from? <laughs> I want to know what's happening tomorrow. Where do I look? And then you get disenchanted and you throw your hands up and you quit your job. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was very surprising the wide variety of answers I got to that question. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so it comes from the West <laughs> because of where we live. And so all that air coming over the Pacific is doing nothing but picking up moisture. That's great. Travels a long way. It's a fetch. It's got a long fetch. So that air travels over there, gets a lot of moisture, and then it hits the mountains. And it can't go through it, so it's got to go up. That's that thing that we call orographic lift, which is super fun to say. And just like when we talked about Hadley cells, you lift that stuff up and you create precipitation on that side of the mountain. Right, so on the windward side of the mountain. Mm-hmm, exactly. And that's where you get all the great lush vegetation. This is why... The western slopes of the Rocky Mountains have so much more wonderful pow-pow to ski than the eastern slopes. This doesn't mean the eastern slopes don't get anything. They definitely do, um, or else you wouldn't be able to ski a basin in Denver. But the western slopes get significantly more precipitation. Now the air's got to come back over the mountains, go down. Same thing. It's compressing. High pressure, now it's dry. So on that side, you've created this more arid situation, like the city of Denver, and we call that the rain shadow. Right, and this, it's really pretty similar, just a more localized version and that doesn't yeah, involve circulation, exactly. but the mechanism is the exact same. Uh, mm -hmm. So you get this off the Cascades, off the Rockies, off Sierra Nevadas. Mm-hmm. And so on the, <laughs> when I draw it on the board, so I've got, you know, I've got water on one side, then a big mountain, and then a happy cactus on the other side. <laughs> so it's just, you're aridifying the air and you can get deserts that are rain shadow deserts. Um, we were also looking at, if you look at a 30 year, you know, climatological average precip map, and if you think about the Cascades and the Sierra Nevadas, so the Cascades are fairly close to the coast, right? Um, and they're volcanic mountains that are created by subduction. And then you got a valley, and then you have the Sierra Nevadas, which are a different type of mountain range. So you've got these two mountain ranges lined up. And you see that on the western sl slopes of both of those mountains, you have significant, I mean, 10 to 15 to 30 inches more precipitation than you get in that little valley in between them. And that little valley in between them is a rain shadow desert. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty cool because, you know, the students look at that map and I just say, tell me what you noticed about this. And they always point that weird little stripe out and they're like, what's happening here? And I say, that wasn't a paid segue. And then I draw it on the board <laughs> and it's perfect. <laughs> Sometimes you got to lead them there. But anyway, um, so rain shadow deserts, that's, Fairly easy. If anyone lives on, you know, the eastern side of the mountains, they experience that um, here in the U.S. for sure. And yeah, that's why you go to the western slopes to ski. But that's not all the deserts. There's still a couple more ways that we can make them. Right. And there are some deserts on the coast, which makes you say, wait, we just talked about water <laughs> introducing lots of moisture into the air over these long fetches with the wind coming across it. 
A great way to not have that happen, though, is for the water to be very cold. So now, instead of currents in the atmosphere driving it, these are ocean currents that are driving convection, or in this case, no convection. Yes, you've got lots of cold uh, water very close to the coast. It's hard for the air to pick up a lot of moisture from that, and that just results in you know, a sea breeze with no humidity. (laughs) (laughs) Right, yeah, exactly. Which is a great way to dry things out. And so this happens places like the coast of Chile. Correct. And that desert, the Atacama Desert, uh, it's one of the driest places on Earth. Didn't they just get snowfall in the Atacama like last year or the year before? The first time in like recorded history or something? Uh, That sounds right. I do remember something about a desert getting snowfall. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It was <laughs> recently. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, 2011. That's still <laughs> mostly recent. Uh, no, it was uh, 2018 was the last okay. time. So that was last year. Yeah. So it's just like I said, you know, you can still ski on the eastern slopes of the Rockies, just you don't get nearly as much snow. So the same thing here. Um, you just sometimes you still get precipitation, just not nearly as much. But it is one of the driest places in the world. Um, I don't remember what the average um, precipitation that they get there. Obviously, less than 250 millimeters. But, yeah, it's really weird. Um, the one that hit them, though, the snowstorm, it says it dumped 32 inches of snow on the desert. Wow. More snow than the region. Yeah. More snow than the region has seen combined in the last 50 years. <laughs> yeah so so less than an inch yeah. a year so on average yeah those those can be so the uh, i had friends that went there a couple of years ago and they said it was an unbelievable landscape i would love to go there um because you still get weathering in these places which is what is crazy to me really weird weathering but we can get into that it's, another it's all time. that chemistry stuff look my, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna blow this up right now. My New Year's resolution is to stop dogging on chemistry. <laughs> we'll see how long I make it. All right, we'll we'll hold you to it. <laughs> okay, yeah, great. <laughs> so, but then you say, well, what about if I have cold ocean currents and sinking air? <laughs> so we combine a couple of these effects and. Well, okay, we've got Hadley cells, feral cells, and there's one more kind of cell, right? The polar cell. Yeah, so polar cells uh, can uh, also have these massive sinking motions, very dry, and unfortunately, not a lot of heat there by the time the air's made <laughs> yeah. it that far north or south. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. And they have... A lot of really cold, like the the circumantarctic current. Yeah, so that current is a big deal, especially when we're talking about coming into the current ice house climate that we're in, even though we're kind of getting out of this glacial period, but going into this glacial period, that, that current is what set off Antarctic glaciation. So as long as you had some warm water getting down there, it was really hard to to grow that continental glacier. And as soon as you cut it off, 
and you've got this circumpolar current, when you open up the Drake Passage, that little, as soon as South America and Antarctica got just wide enough apart tens of millions of years ago, um, that's super cold water, just that, oh, okay, we're going to freeze up. So, I mean, why is there snow on the ground? It still snows there, right? Oh, yeah. Just, it doesn't go anywhere once it does snow, and it's not that much. It's not that much. It looks like it because it snows and it doesn't go anywhere and it gets compacted into fern and eventually into solid ice. Right. Exactly. You just wanted to say fern. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I, 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 I like fern. It's, it's an interesting transition between snow and ice. Uh, I like to talk. Yeah, we talked about metamorphic ice. It's really weird. It's like sedimentary ice and then metamorphic ice. It's the coolest thing ever. Since ice is a mineral, it's not weird. I, I was going to say, you say that like it's a surprising thing, but. As we've been uh, over and over, uh, ice is a mineral. Oh, so true. It's no different than so, your, your so-called rocks. <laughs> what is different? Because it's a mineral, not a rock. But you're a geophysicist, so I don't expect you to understand the subtleties. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the last way. Okay. So the last way is if your air doesn't have any access to water, uh, so you don't have much moisture to start with. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> the, if you had a long land fetch, you would get this. So even if you did come over water, you would dump a lot of that moisture out pretty quickly. And then you would end up somewhere like the central U.S. Yeah. Which is dry, exactly. but not dry enough to be a desert. No, I mean, not overall. Um so, yeah, just like you said, even if you're going over the coast, if you've got mountains along the coast, you're going to lose it immediately because that rain shadow effect. And if it keeps going, you're not going to get much, which is interesting when you look at that overall precipitation map of the U.S., which I urge you to go do. Um, so if you put that next to an elevation map of the U.S., with the right color scheme, they're virtually the same map. And that color scheme is not jet. Not jet. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> but they're virtually the same map. So it's like, why is why is Kansas, why are Kansas and Oklahoma and Nebraska, you know, why aren't we deserts? And we're not because we get some southerly flow from the Gulf of Mexico. Right. But so th these, these are called continental interior deserts. And there have been times in the past, though, where we've had a big enough mass of land that the interior gets very dry. Right. So if you haven't listened to our show with Dr. Lynn Sorgan, we talked about Pangea and what the Earth looked like during the late Paleozoic. So 300-ish million years ago. Um, and we had one big continent, Pangea, and there was a east-to-west mountain range, the Trans-Pangean Mountains, <laughs> that ran through there. And so... <laughs> When you've got cross-meridional flow in the atmosphere, you would get a rain shadow effect on one side of the mountains or the other. So that the mountains are very close to the equator. So you kind of created a rain shadow on both as the ITCZ, the intertropical convergence zone, moved north and south along there. Um, but you also got huge areas of these continental interior deserts. And so Pangea was really a wasteland, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't fun. <laughs> you had rain shadow desert. You had 
kind of an interior desert. It was so hot. It was real dry. It was not a fun place. But these are places like, just like you said, the central part of the U.S., um, you know, the Great Basin or the Gobi Desert, too, is one of the bigger continental interior deserts. Yeah. So, I mean, all the desert formation mechanisms, I will say they're similar. Yes. And many of them are related, but they're certainly not identical. And it, I think having this physical understanding of why the deserts are there then helps you see why we have so much desert. Yeah. It's so cool because, like, some of them are more atmospherically dominated. Some of them are ocean current dominated. And some of them don't have really, you know, a ton to do with either of those. It's really, it's kind of neat um, to see that interaction which, like I said, 30% of 30% of our land is desert, so. Or 30% of 30% of our earth is desert. It's a lot. Yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah. But deserts, you know, that's not the only extreme environment. No, and we're definitely not done with them. Uh, I, I think we'll be coming back to talk some more about deserts. But I think we'll switch to a completely different extreme environment for this week's... Fun Paper Friday. Yay. So the extreme environment we're talking about is Uranus. And we have talked <laughs> about this before in our planetary series and how it's got a weird asymmetric magnetic field and it's very non-dipole magnetic field, yeah. which is disconcerting for those of us that work with Earth's magnetic field. Uh, yeah, <laughs> not cool. Um, so I will say I chose this because the title is funny. <laughs> Chemical processes in the deep interior of Uranus <laughs> by Chow et al. But the, the paper is not funny. <laughs> no, the paper is pretty serious, but they, uh, <laughs> so they're, they're trying to figure out what, so magneto hydrodynamics is the hundred dollar word. It. Yeah. <laughs> for you're creating a magnetic field by the interaction of fluids flowing around each other in a dynamic way. I love how we don't really get this either, though. No, we, we I mean, we know the theory, but we don't have very good models. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love that so much. Like, here's this thing that we think is happening, but we don't know. Um, yeah. And so it's offset quite a bit from its spin axis magnetic field of Uranus and it's like you said there's a pretty large I mean Earth has up to 10% non-dipole component so it's not like it's the weirdest thing but there's a much larger percent of Uranus's magnetic field that is non-dipole no but to a geologist 10% is zero <laughs> it's not an exact science John <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, so yeah, how do you do that? So what does the interior, cause that's what we think, you know, it comes from. So what does the interior of Uranus have to look like to create this weird non axisymmetric magnetic field? Right. And so they create this thing that they call synthetic Uranus. <laughs> <laughs> which clearly they abbreviate throughout the paper, but when you're reading it, you have to say synthetic Uranus out loud, and it makes the paper much funnier. <laughs> and so this is a a mixture of water, ammonia, and isopropanol. This is weird. Well, I mean, okay, so that's 
that is supposedly representative of what we think the what would be analogous to a mantle is right right mm-hmm. and it then um i like things that are like these actual experiments on stuff that you have to extrapolate to geologic time scales which they say obviously there could be a lot of problems in here but they wanted they try to pressurize these things and put them under sort of the same pressure temperature conditions that they think are existing and see what happens chemically. Like, are there reactions? Does it stratify itself? Does it homogenize itself? What does it do? Right. And so well, one thing they do in this experiment is measure the electrical conductivity because that's very important for generating a magnetic fields. What's the electrical conductivity of the fluid or the solid? Mm-hmm. And they need to get to pretty significant pressures, like 75 to 200 GPA. Yeah. Which that's that gets you to you know, somewhere between half and five eighths of a radius. Mm-hmm. So you're still not super deep, right? Uh, but to do that, uh, one of the easiest ways is to use a gun. That's cool. Not just a <laughs> not just any gun. This is this is called a two stage light gas gun. But basically you're using uh, an explosion to pressurize a very small sample container to very high pressures. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. I figured I'd, yeah, again, you have to like these methods, right? I, I do. They were very short. Yeah. Um, and I don't know anything about doing this or trying to measure the electrical conductivity in one of those experiments. <laughs> that is what seems very hard. And so they measure the conductivity yeah. as a function of time. Which mm-hmm. is kind of cool because when I say it's a function of time, we're not talking about hours. We're talking about milliseconds. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. But you're getting a range of PTs while the gun is firing. And so if you can that measure the conductivity so... rapid, you're sort of mapping out your PT space. Uh, which is, I, for a while I was like, well, what good is that when you're trying to compare that to, you know, the not fluctuating... PT conditions of the core, but you have to achieve those really high pressures somehow. Yes. And I mean, one thing, you know, we say this, always say this isn't exact science. (laughs) You have to even estimate the temperature and the shock pressure that you got to. Uh, So they calculate the theoretical density of this synthetic Uranus (laughs) at these different things using, uh, hydrodynamic codes and the density Uh goes into this equation Uh, Uh they have an experimentally determined equation of state and then they estimate that the uh, the temperature by saying the first shock temperature is 60 percent of the final temperature yeah and you know so there's a lot of approximations and assumptions that go in here but based on the data that we have on some of these really remote bodies that's not that's not a big deal yeah yeah that's as good as you can do mm-hmm. yeah um <clears throat> i do like that the so the graph of these experiments it has the planetary adiabat of uranus and the it says personal communication with uranus <laughs> <laughs> like i don't i don't understand there's no name associated with that personal communication uh, citation <laughs> but anyway i digress yeah, and I will say it looks like uh, 
at least one of the authors probably is a subscriber to the the Edward Tufty school of plotting. <laughs> uh, because there's a lot of extra ink removed. Like you don't have the the top or the right spines. Uh, does that bother you? No. No, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. Um but okay. it's just funny cuz you can always tell somebody that's read read the Edward Tufty books. It does that that's that's very funny. Yeah. I I always like it. Very visually pleasing. It is. Um but they find so when they do this, I mean, they find a few things about what's happening down here and I don't understand the chemistry of what superionic behavior is or reticulating behavior. But essentially, you squeeze the methane so hard, it turns into diamonds, and that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So you get... So methane CH4, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you basically get a disassociation and precipitation of the carbon. Mm-hmm. And it happens that you can participate di- precipitate diamond. Yeah. So that's cool. But the bad part... I mean, diamond's not really conductive, so... Um, Which sort of shuts really. down the, the magneto... Yeah hydrodynamic effect correct um but it'd be really neat if there was just a whole bunch of a ring of diamonds floating around the uh core of uranus well but there's a lot of speculation here on well can we have a thin layer involved in this or do we have a thicker layer so we can actually get at some of what the planetary structure must look like for this magnetic field to even be possible which then helps you do things like interpret gravity data because now we have some constraints on what the interior looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is a 2011 um, paper, so I wonder if anything more has been done along this same line based on new stuff that we've gotten. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we've got a lot of new things. I guess we didn't get anything when uh, the when we went out to Pluto, did we? I don't think so. We didn't. We didn't go close enough to it, so... Yeah, well, this is probably it then. Um, but it's really weird to think about that, the dissociation of these chemicals and then stratification of them in the core. But I didn't really quite get how... Okay, so I understand that, the associating of that and the stratification, but it didn't really tie back to does this match the, you know, non-dipole field that we see. Right. I was a little disappointed in the fact that there wasn't really a conclusion. Yeah. And this is a nature communications paper. And so I thought, did I just not understand this? And I had to go back. But yeah, it doesn't. um, So the big deal is how does that work? But the outcome of this paper was just, you know, what does the electrical conductivity look like? I guess they're passing it off to somebody else to do the actual magneto hydrodynamo experiments right and you know i say that not in a way to belittle the amount of work that this took not at all uh, <laughs> not at all i just wanted anything an answer <laughs> experimental like this is so fiddly oh yeah no and, and that's why it's super cool to get actual you know actual data not just model data even though if it's on the time scale of milliseconds and we're talking about time scales of billions of years which is an interesting thing to think about, right? So often we get stuck in the in the nano scale and we have a hard time scaling that to, you know, like the whole rock scale. And this is the same thing, but with time. Yes. And, and so it's kind of fun. Another thing that I will point out in their figures, I don't see many people do this and I really wish more people would. Um, figure 1B is a perfect example. You notice the points <laughs> are different shaped <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Some are filled. So like there's a filled square, an open square, a filled circle, and a filled diamond. Mm-hmm. They are black, white, blue, and red, respectively. Mm-hmm. This is beautiful. Because if somebody prints this on a black and white printer, or if someone is colorblind, they can still tell the difference between the data points. All of them. But if you're looking mm-hmm. at it on a screen or projecting it, or you have a color printer, it makes it even easier to group them. Mm-hmm. Not yep. color or shape alone is not enough. There you go. So I really appreciate it when I see authors do things like that. That's awesome. Yeah, these are these are beautiful plots. Yeah. Worthy of a nature communications paper. Even if they didn't solve the <sighs> magneto hydrodynamo. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, well, and I, yeah, I think so... there's a lot of potential... Uh, oh, yeah. Iteration on things like this. Well, you have to know what to stick inside, either your model or your actual spinning, you know, discs with junk inside of it that you're generating magnetic field in, which we do. Um, So you have to know what's in there. And that's what this paper was getting at. Right. What, What do you put in there? So what's the chemical makeup of Uranus to create magnetic fields? Well, if you have your own experimental data that you would like to contribute to this study, if you've made your own uh, two-stage light gas gun, we would love to see that. Shannon, how can folks get a hold of us? Uh, You can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can come to the Slack chat room. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you may do so. Patreon.com slash Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.